I'm going to ask you to take, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, uh, we have the scripture will be on the screen in a little bit. And we're continuing in this series in Matthew. I began in chapters 8 and 9 and, and then thought, you know what? This stuff is so good in Matthew, I just want to continue through. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the truth that comes in it. I'd ask right now, Lord Jesus, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to freely move through me and and uh, and among us. God, I know that people are coming with all different sorts of questions in different places from different experiences. And so, God, we come before you as people that you know and you see and you understand our situation. And I ask that your spirit would speak uniquely to each of us, we pray in your name. Amen. We know our church has a body has had an opportunity for a number of years to partner with a ministry called Teen Challenge. And some of you are very familiar with it and some the word Teen Challenge may be a a new word to you. Teen Challenge is is really a ministry to people just like you and me who need God's love and need to know that love through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Many enter Teen Challenge broken either by addiction or alcohol or drugs or something that is some kind of chemical dependency. That's how they get there. It was started for teens and has now moved for people 20, 30, 40, 50 years or so of age. All different walks of life. Many of those being served there come from incredibly difficult backgrounds. Many of them have come to a place where they're dealing with and, and working through by God's power and grace, patterns of behavior, self-centered patterns, some that they learned in the environment they lived in, some that they chose, which we all choose, even though the environment's around us, these patterns that have brought much pain into their life and into the lives of other people. And many are being set free by God's love. Well, for the past couple of years, we've had some people within our church who have been mentoring some of these individuals. And it's been a a great relationship, and we're developing more of those kind of relationships where an individual here will actually mentor someone who is going through that process. And and you would think that maybe a mentoring is, you know, I'm going to give to this person. But there's an interesting kind of relationship that develops where each person brings their wealth and poverty, so to speak, of what God is teaching them. And it's a really great thing. Well... I heard a letter this week that I found to be very encouraging from someone who is in that Teen Challenge ministry who is connected with a mentor. And I'm going to change the name to preserve anonymity. Uh, She writes, my name is Pauline. Again, this is a false name. Um, Her real name is Susan. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I actually learned that joke from John Vauder, who is one of the former pastors here. She writes, I'm a recent... Paulina writes, I'm a recent graduate of Teen Challenge. One of the attenders at Wyzetta Free is my mentor, and I've gotten to know a few other people who attend Wyzetta Free as well. They're such wonderful people, and I'm so blessed to have them in my life. I can't thank you enough for blessing me and my son with a brand new washing machine. I was so surprised 
When someone called me Tuesday afternoon and told me that some people from Wyzetta Free Church had found a washing machine for me and that it was literally on the way to my home as I was on the phone with this person. I had just the evening before told a friend how I had spent eight hours on Sunday washing clothes in the bathtub. That was a lot more work than I had anticipated. But I sat on a stool next to the tub doing my best to rinse out the soap and squeeze out as much water as I possibly could. And then I would carry it down to the basement to the dryer. It was very heavy, exclamation points. I thank God that at least I had a way to do laundry even without a washing machine. I do my best to be thankful in every situation. I know when I come to the Lord with a thankful heart, He blesses me. And this is a perfect example of his blessing. And then she writes some other things about getting the washer down there, but ends it with, so from the bottom of my heart, I thank you again for being such a caring and giving people, willing to give something to someone you don't even know. You will be truly blessed, not only, not only here on earth, but in heaven someday too. God bless you and your family. Paulina. We're continuing the series in Matthew. I was talking in Matthew 8 and 9 about Jesus still heals. But I think it's interesting. You come to chapter 10 and it's about following Jesus. And a rabbi who Jesus was expected his students to do what he did. Not just to intellectually grasp it. He failed if he just got the intellectual truths. If he just had a, 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 like a Sunday school class or a Bible study or, a, or sermons like this and people walked away and go, I know more. He wanted people to know and then to do that. So there would be letters like this from a person like Paulina who would experience people who are following Jesus, not just knowing about Him, but doing in love what He does. So their lives are changed and touched. Really the question is you get to Matthew 10 after we left Jesus still healing and, 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 and he shows you all the, the way that, um, that he is about proclaiming the kingdom and then demonstrating, you know, declaring the kingdom, just demonstrating the kingdom. Now he's talking about doing the kingdom work. So what does that mean? Doing what it means to let God rule in your life. I came back from Lima, Peru. Incredible trip for me to be able to go there. And I just am so grateful for the congregation um, that you have allowed me these, these trips to go to Poland to see what God does in the team there last year, to go this year to Peru, to Lima, to see not only what's happening through Dave and Gina's ministry, but to spend um, a Sunday morning in Lavinia, the church that was planted here as a result of this church's ministry, and to see and to find out there's six other churches and to, to experience the kind of life change that's happening because you, you chose to love. By giving yourself, not just financially, but prayerfully for these people, the Bruggers and, and now the Johnsons who are over there, and the Stavroses and Meredith from our church. We have a whole group of people over there as a result of what God has done in your hearts, and I just am so grateful. It's not something to be proud about. You know, it's not something we get arrogant about. It's something we just go, man, can you believe God gave us the opportunity to touch people's lives? So when I was there, I had an opportunity. I do some work with a group called Food for the Hungry, some consulting, and, and help them with some things. And I went down to a little city called Chincha, two hours south of Lima. And that city had been devastated by an earthquake three years ago. They had an earthquake of 7.9. And then just 10 minutes later, 8.1. Adobe bricks don't hold up well under that kind of shaking. 
homes were just flattened. I had an opportunity to meet with some uh, with the, the FH ministry, but specifically stayed with one of our free church ministers, their uh, missionaries, Gordy and Bear Grover. And they walked us all around the village. We saw the USA ID tents and, and we saw the home still devastated. And he just he had a little note clip clipboard and on it had 40 different people. And he has to go around and make selections. It just tore my heart out to watch this. To go around and make selections of who would get a home and who wouldn't. And a lot of his selection process where, where there were either very old senior citizens living with a family that had small children. He was trying to make those selections. And they, and they are able to, for about $5,000, build an actual structure, a home that keeps them warm and keeps them dry and keeps them in a place where their little kids begin to have a way forward in life. And I, I went through there and I, and I asked him, what, is this, what does it mean? He says, you know, there's something about the fact that when followers of Jesus come over here, because he talked about all the other aids and things that were really helpful, he said, but there's something about followers of Jesus. Not only do they come and, and, and build it, but they actually give their lives in some way, and they really invest their hearts into these people. And, and, and he said, in fact, the very first home that was ever built was built for this young man, this, this young man and his family, Rafa, who now he's actually trained in to do building. So this Rafa has a job helping build homes. Um, they're running out of funds, but they're, they're still trying to do these. The very first home, the guy didn't understand. He goes, why in the world? There was a team of people who had come from the U.S. And he said to one of the leaders with Gary Grover there, why would you come to my little town of 80,000, to my little family, to build me this home? And... Uh, the person on the team shared with him that it was because of the love of Jesus. And they would actually write um, words of blessing on the walls that would then get covered later. Uh, of, you know, Jesus loves you and, and things like that. And as a result of that, he about a week later came to Gary and said, Gary, how do I follow this Jesus? How do I get that kind of love in me? And Gary went on to share with him just the need of, of confessing his heart and, and not having to, it's not about him changing, about him being open to God moving in his heart and, and receiving his forgiveness through the work that Jesus has done to the cross. And just explain the whole thing. And he, he's a follower of Jesus now. He's loving other people. And so I, I say all this because as we get into chapter 10, Chapter 10 is about God's call to follow Jesus. Jesus actually calls 12 disciples in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And in this very call, he's, in a sense, writing this Matthew is to Jews, but also knowing it'll go to others someday, or God at least did. And he makes the same call to you and to me. Would you be that kind of disciple? Not just that knows about, but actually does, gets engaged in, in loves. Matthew 10 is a call to follow, and it's a call to be disciples. And disciples basically means being a one who is a learner of Jesus' way, this way of love and power, of walking in truth before God. 
It's a call to follow. And so in verse 5, then Jesus says, after he makes his call to these disciples, in verse 5, he says, now I'm going to give you some instructions. And these instructions are meant to help them as they will share this message of who Jesus is. This is prior to Jesus going to the cross. So they're going throughout the land of Israel. He makes it very clear, don't go anywhere else, but you stay. Don't go down the ways of the Gentiles. Don't, in a sense, go into these other territories. But for right now, here's what you're called to do. I want you to go here. And so he makes some very specific instructions. And how you love people with this message. I, just a simple outline as I began to kind of wrestle through this in Matthew 10, in this two-week, really three-week series called Following Jesus. Matthew 10, 1 through 4 is the call. Now we get to chapter 10, verse 5 through 23, and Brian spoke on some of this last week. Is really the character and conduct of those who receive the gospel. He's talking about, well, as you go out, I want you to notice this character and conduct of those whom you're going to. And then chapter 10, verse 24 and verse 25 is, in my mind, kind of a transitional verse. Jesus is basically looking at him, and after he's talked about that, he says, you know what? Um, Real students are like the teacher. And then he goes on to express in verses 26 through 42, here's the character and conduct that you should have, just like Jesus, as you go out. And so he kind of gives them an idea what they're going to experience in the sense of the kind of people they're supposed to go to. And then he kind of gives this transition. Then he moves into what I call the character and conduct of those that they're going to. And Matthew places this before the calling of the twelve. If you go into Luke or to other to Mark, Mark scatters it a little bit. Luke puts it before the seventy-two. There's a couple different times when he called disciples together and he would say, "Go out and here's the instructions I'll give you." So you have to remember this, that Matthew is not concerned about chronology. He is more concerned about a topic. He's calling people right now to be disciples. And the truth is that Jesus was an itinerant speaker, so it doesn't give you a lot of problems if he puts these instructions before the 12 or before the 72, just like he would teach similar messages. And, and, you know, I've got to tell you as a preacher, if you've got a good story, you're going to use it more than once. See, Jesus, as an itinerant minister, would go from one place to another, and he would use the same message often in different places. He would also do the same thing when he would talk to his disciples and he would send them out. They, they record different times they would go out here, and, and all the scholars trying to get specific on, well, he did it one or two times. He may have done it a number of times. And most every time he'd do it, he'd probably give those instructions again. How many times as parents do you give the same instructions to your kids when you leave them at home? Remember when you did that, some of you, or some of you who are doing that? Now make sure, you know, you're, you're scared to death you're going to leave the oldest one responsible for the rest. Well, there's a sense that Jesus is giving these instructions again. And you'll note these instructions are, are temporal, first of all, to the 12 or to the 72. Verses 5 and following. But somewhere around verse 16, it becomes, it changes. It becomes more general. It's almost in a sense that, that he moves from this kind of specific and at some point begins to move into more of a general teaching that applies to the disciples that would follow after his death even to this day. And, and when it makes that shift, it's really not always clear in the way that Matthew presents it. Matthew has a tendency of missing, of actually mixing together time-specific teaching with latter-fulfilled prophecy. If you read Matthew 24 and chapter 25, for scholars, it's some of the most difficult. It's about the end times. And, and he begins, Jesus is beginning, talking about specifically what's going to be happening. And then he begins to move. And Matthew records this in a way that I think he sets it up for the very purpose that, that we will always live with an expectation that we just don't know when Jesus will come again. 
So what you have here is a very similar thing going on. You have these very specific instructions that move into general ones as he teaches. Because he has no problem doing that because at the very end of his gospel, chapter 28, he looks at all of us in the eye in a sense and he says, go. But it's not really go in the Greek. It's as you go throughout your day. As you're going daily, help make people into followers of Jesus that love like Jesus loved. And that's his call at the very end. So now he puts these instructions in here earlier on. Okay, let's look at verses 10, uh, chapter 11, uh, chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. He says in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. Remember, when he says this, it's, again, that Jesus is not kind of like he lies once in a while. He's just basically saying, this is so incredibly true. Bank on it. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for that town. He's talking about the kind of people and the reception they give. What I want you to do, because it's a time-sensitive mission that you're on, you guys. I'm sending you 12, or I'm sending you 72. You're going out for maybe a week, or you're going out for a three-day trip, or whatever that trip's going to be. You know that as you go out, I want you to move and keep moving. And so maybe it's a seven-day trip. If you go to one village, and then you stay there for a day or two, and you go to the next. What I want you to be looking for is people who are worthy. And there's an important thing for us to understand here of some of these words. But what I see in this whole passage of Scripture, and the, the primary point I would hope to get across this morning is this, that as you look at this, there is a sense that Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to go out and I want you to take advantage of every opportunity you can. If there's any teaching that I want you to get from this whole passage of Scripture as we go through this whole thing, is this idea that you're to take advantage of the opportunities that are before you that open themselves up for you to love someone else, to love them into the kingdom of God. If there's an opportunity, make sure your heart's aware and open. And when the Spirit of God prompts you, I'm not talking about false guilt. I'm talking about in your heart and your soul. And, and some of that is even a learning process of learning how to be sensitive to what God is calling you to step into. When God calls you to do something, He doesn't make you feel really guilty and rotten. He really comes to you in love and He kind of prompts you and you begin to do it. And you say, should, is this something I should do? And then sometimes you just step out in faith. I, I sometimes wonder about when I'm taking uh, you know, advantage of an opportunity for God. I'll ask my wife sometimes, should I do it? And she goes, well, if it's good, why not? Right? Well, here's some specific instructions that Jesus himself, I think, followed when he was an itinerant. I think these first words that we look at in verses 11 through 15 is what Jesus himself did. He would go into a place and he'd look for someone who was worthy. And the word here is not necessarily someone who's morally upright or religiously, sincerely active. But the idea is they're open and receptive to this message of God's grace and love. And they are so in a position where they go, it's like a, it's like a glass of water. I need that. 
And that's really what the word is. One commentator put it, this term is not used here to denote religious or moral worth, nor does it mean honorable, that, that this worthy. Worthy means this. You are worthy in the eyes of God if you're open to His Spirit and you're open to His presence and you're open to His grace and His mercy and His goodness and His love because you recognize without it, you're lost. He's not talking about moral uprightness. He says when you go out, that's the kind of people I want you to look for. Some examples in Jesus' ministry is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was despised by all kinds of people, if you read this in Luke chapter 19. And in verse 7 it says, All the people saw this and began to mutter when they saw Jesus go to the home of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in their eyes, wasn't worthy. But in the eyes of God, he was so worthy because it says, They muttered, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. You have to have some kind of edge to that word. You know, we sometimes sit here, I think I do, and self-righteously look at that. You know what? I do that too. I, it's so easy to judge. Isn't it? It's so easy when you're actually seeking to follow after God and you're going to church and you're seeking to do that. It's so easy to get to a position where you start thinking because what you're doing makes you worthy in God's eyes. No way. And so they, they judge. Matthew. Chapter 10, verse 3, Matthew records the list of the twelve, and it's only in Matthew's gospel where he adds Matthew the tax collector. Isn't it interesting? Matthew himself knew where he came from. And only he, of all the apostles when they wrote these gospels, Matthew is still amazed that as a social and spiritual outcast, he who once was on the outside is now on the inside. He belongs. He's accepted by God. He writes with a sense of just gratitude. It goes on and it says, stay at this house. This is the idea of being courteous and honorable, not self-serving. Jesus' intention was that when you go to home and, they, and they're open and they're receptive and you find this place and you start to stay there and you find out that for maybe two of you, you've got a cramped little room where you're staying with the children. And then maybe a day into the ministry, you find out there's another guy who's got three rooms in a pool and he says, don't leave that house. And it's just a simple thing. When you're out as a person presenting the love of God, you need to make sure that it's very sincere. It's very, it's very clear that you're there for the people and for that person. You're not there for your advantage. That's basically Jesus is saying. And then he says the words bless. Give, at your, uh, give a greeting or a blessing when, you're, when you go through the door. And in a typical Jewish setting, when you would go into the home of someone, you would give this greeting saying, peace be to this house. So they go into this place that's receiving them, accepting the message. At least they're in that place where they're at this point receiving and accepting it. But maybe at some point some other person comes along and poisons things or they turn on it. And if they reject it, there is a sense that words have so much power and they do have power. Your words can have power and especially a word that has the that, that God is speaking through you. Changes lives. The Word of God is living and active. That's what he means. It's living. It's alive. When the Word of God comes through you, it has this power. So there's a sense that he says, if you come into this house and you, you, you place a blessing on it, but at a certain point, this person who was worthy because they saw their unworthiness rejects you and, and, and says, I don't want anything, and they turn on you. There is this sense, he says, what you do then as you leave is you take the blessing back with you. If rejected. Not even you necessarily, but the message of God. 
of Jesus through you. Then he says, shake the dust off your feet. Verse 14, if you will not welcome, if, if, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave that home or town. In fact, it's interesting, Mark and Luke add to that as a testimony against them, a witness that they want nothing to do with the love and grace of God. They, in their own selves, think that they're okay before God. And so he actually says home and town. He, he makes it clear there are times when even a whole town, because a whole town would reject Christ. And Matthew doesn't even use the words as a testimony against them because he's writing to Jews. They knew this to be the case. It would force them to ask the question. You mean if we reject this Jesus and this message of God's grace through him in the sense that our unworthiness puts in a place to be worthy before God? You mean if we, if we reject that, we're no better than pagans like we, when we do that? Because the idea was that when they would leave a Gentile area, they would actually leave the land into the border of which is now Jewish land. They would take off their shoes. They'd take them off, but these are too hard to get back on. But they take them off and they shake off every particle so they won't be defiled by that. And there's a sense that what Jesus is trying to get across in Matthew specifically to this Jewish group whom have been prepared since the beginning of Abraham on. He's saying at this point, you are no better than pagans as you have rejected not Jesus, not some minor prophet you are rejecting the messiah the son of god and in doing so you're rejecting god and you are no better than pagans that's really the message that he's trying to get across and that would that would ring the ears of a person who is a jew and grew up in that system in that country we actually see evidence of this in Acts chapter 13, verses 49 to 51. Paul and his ministry, it says in verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So Paul's going around and he's doing this ministry. Paul obviously had these instructions. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high, uh, of high standing. So here, these are not um, those of, of the Jewish um, belief. God-fearing women outside the faith of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So what you have is, again, here's what's really interesting. It wasn't the pagans. It was the, this large synagogue in this Pisidian Antioch area. Those people who claimed to be followers of God prepared through the whole system of the law and sacrifices in this community outside Israel when Paul was going. They reject this message of Jesus. They get the high-standing women who are in the synagogue to get the pagan rulers to react against them and throw them out. And so they throw them out. And listen to what it says, verse 51. So Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And 52 is kind of cool. And the disciples were just filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of sense that, you know, I've offered this and I've given them this incredible gift, but they've rejected it. That's not on me. I, lo I would love for you to have it, but I'm just going to continue to move on filled with the joy of God, looking for someone who's receptive, willing to know, willing to hear. So there's two practical truths that I want to share with you. One specific to the disciples. He was sending them out. Time was short. The mission, while Jesus was physically on the earth, was temporary. 
These disciples were on a time-sensitive mission to find the most willing people who would receive the message of God's grace. They didn't have time to go to a place and to argue or dispute or to seek to win a stubborn person over. There would be times and opportunities for that later after Jesus' death and resurrection. Some of you are engaged probably with that, but not at this time. This is specific to these disciples. There are times when the opportunity is such that you reach those who are eager and hungry to hear. And the disciples were on the move. And when there was no immediate welcome for them, they brought the message elsewhere. Now let me just share with you a general principle to us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ here. There is really a permanent truth. There is what I would call a lasting principle, something which is eternal, which applies to us. And one of the greatest truths of life is that from time to time, opportunities will come our way. They present themselves to us that we will never get again. That's just a reality of life. There are certain opportunities that only come around once. My family was in town, my, my parents, and they had to leave early this morning to go back. But in the process, we started talking again. And one of the old stories came up of my great-grandpa. And, and we used to. You know, around Thanksgiving time, Christmas time, when you would you would gather with family. I don't know. When, when I was a kid, we lived in Minneapolis, and the rest of our family all lived in the Chicago area. So we would drive down there, and it was the greatest thing. We'd sit around the table. You have one large table of all the adults and the kids over here. But somehow, when Uncle George would start telling the stories of great-grandpa Crone, everybody listened. And one of my favorite stories, and one of my saddest stories in some ways, was the story of great-grandpa Crone, who had traveled with and roomed with E.J. Brock and J.L. Kraft, separately. They were within his, his sphere of influence. This is back in the early 1900s. Brock Candies and Kraft Cheese, both who began their businesses in Chicago around 1903-04. E.J. Brock invited my great-grandfather one time on a trip, was explaining his whole concept of this whole idea of candy packaging and things like that to my grandfather, wanted him to become a business partner and invest in his little business. Another, another trip, J.F. Kraft tried to convince Henry, who I sometimes don't necessarily even refer to my great-grandfather anymore because I don't know if the great applies, but um, asked him to join him in packaging dairy products, which he just didn't do in those days. You would go get hard candy, I guess, from a barrel. Anybody remember that? Okay, well, at least some of you believe me here. They didn't do that. He couldn't conceive of putting food in packaging. And he missed the opportunity. Just think of how I could give the missions today. <laughs> he didn't do it. He invested in a much safer investment through the 1920s and 30s, which was the stock market. And lost a whole lot of money. And missed a great opportunity. Because some opportunities only come around once. And when they come and you sense that God is in it and you sense the spirit of God, I can tell you this. Satan will try and do everything from you moving into it. Don't miss it. Don't don't play fast and loose with it. 
I, I was thinking about this as a church body, and I, I was thinking through some of the opportunities God has given us as a people. You know what? You had an opportunity through Dave and Gina and through some others to make a difference in Peru that is making a lasting impact in an area that is changed forever. And praise God you didn't miss it, and we didn't miss it. We have opportunities. We, we this summer have been serving and have been beginning to develop a relationship and strengthen a relationship that we've had with Maple Hill Estates, the mobile homes there, and a whole community where there's need, where there's people who, who are not in a place where we're at. And it's not about us giving them things. It's about us giving a message of hope through the love of Jesus Christ that can change their lives. And what does it mean for us to do that practically? How do we love them and serve them? What does that look like for us as a body? I think of what we have here, and I will say it with some of our Chinese friends here with the Hospitality Center for the Chinese, the incredible ministry God has given us, almost dropped in our lap in a sense, where we have the impact to be able to share with people who are coming over who who maybe never heard clearly the message of, of the Bible and Jesus and the incredible sense of humility it is that there's a God who would love us so much that he wants to be in relationship with us. We've had opportunities, we've given furniture, we've gone to the welcome events. There are opportunities before us, folks, and there's opportunities when we look at Teen Challenge, there's opportunities with Freedom Works or other prison ministries. We have these opportunities, and I don't know what they are, and many of you are engaged in them, but some of you may be in a position right now where you're kind of wondering, what am I going to do this fall, or or God's kind of beginning to, to tug on your heart. I just challenge you not to miss the opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity. You may be in a situation as an individual, you're standing before an open door. I had one of those and, and it kept knocking on my heart. For an, And here's what's so incredible about God. I, I, we have a God that is a God who's gracious, who, who, who gives us more opportunities than we can ever realize. I mean, God is patient with us. He is patient. But there is a time when he comes to the final visit. But he was knocking on my heart, and I think he was coming to me on a certain situation of reconciliation. i got to deal with something, and God made it really clear. You may be in a situation like that. There may be someone, or there may be an individual that God is saying, you know what, you're not right. And he's, he's, he's kind of given you, and there is that sense of, of guilt in a positive way that it, it, it moves you towards doing what's right. There may be an opportunity for you to get uh, restored today in your marriage. And you may be sitting here next to the person that you've committed love to and in, in, in your heart relationship with and, and your hearts aren't right. There's an opportunity for some to invest in kids or grandkids that you'll never have again. What I think is interesting, when you get to verse 15, Jesus makes this point really simple here. He says, in a sense, the greater the revelation, the greater responsibility. The more revelation you have, the greater responsibility. So if you look at verse 15, he makes a statement where he says, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And there's a reason why he says that. Because he's saying prior to the coming of Jesus and the revelation that they all knew and all the revelation they had of the prophets, they they had hardly any understanding. And yet God still held them accountable. But you know what? For those who had heard the message of Jesus now, even prior to the death, he said, you know what? Even you folks who have seen the miracles and you've seen the healings and you've seen the work of God, you've seen the testimony of God's love. You have greater responsibility with regard to the opportunity that's before you. 
That's what 15 is all about. He's basically saying where you're sitting today compared to where others, especially Sodom and Gomorrah sat, you will bear more responsibility for what you know. And then what you do with you, what you know. So, verse 16 and on. Read it. It's a great chapter. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to go into all that. Jesus warns them, and he basically says, if the character you're looking for is this, this, this sense of worthiness with regard to a person who understands they need the grace of God, he now says, when you begin to bring the grace of God to people, it is going to tick other people really off. It's going to get them really angry. Because people who have built their lives, especially religious people, church people who have built their lives on on the sense of what they have done and and the decisions they've made and all these things they built their lives on what they hold as their goodness and you come along and you say your goodness isn't good enough for god and you're banking your life on that And you're the one because of your goodness that is, in a sense, the one in power holding the others down who feel rotten and don't believe that God loves them. And you're holding it and you think God loves you because of who you are and what you've done and and all these, you know, whatever. You're going to be really angry. And that's what he says. Expect that. They're like wolves, he says. And that's what he says in Matthew 7. Watch out for the false prophets. And you'll know a good tree when you see it by its fruit. That is that you'll see it by the love. You'll see it by the fact that when they hear the message of the grace of God, they won't react in anger. They won't be upset because they've they've built this foundation that's now being taken from them. And their power that they've been using over people is gone. Now they have the power only of God in their lives. And he says, you're going to expect that. And so he goes out and he gives these verses. Be on your guard against them. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. And on my account, brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you, which you have evidence of Jesus again and again. And whenever he was in those situations where the Pharisees were trying to trap him, God gave him words. He knew that even the Spirit of God gave him those words. But he does make something really clear. He says, you need to be wise when you go out and do this. You need to be wise, like, and they use the word serpents, cunning, clever. But he wants to make it very clear. He's not talking about a cleverness that manipulates people towards what you want. He talks about a cleverness that is as innocent as doves. It's a cleverness in the sense that comes from the moral purity that your own innocence and heart before God. That's how you need to respond in those situations. You, you do all those things so that in that sense, there's no sense of blame or accountability with regard to how you respond to those people. And the hatred and opposition will be so tough and so, so great. He says, brother will betray brother to death. Father is child. Children will rebel against parents and they have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And he's not saying here, um, he, he's not saying your salvation is based on you. It's just, just endure is what he's saying. And when you've been persecuted in one place, flee to another. And I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Which is one of the hardest, hardest verses in the whole Bible. It's simply, here's what I believe it makes sense to me. He is making a prophetic statement to them that, that this generation won't pass before the judgment of God comes on Israel. And that did happen in 70 A.D. There is an opportunity, he's basically saying, and you must take advantage of it. Because you won't have it forever. 
Let me just close by just sharing with you. I read this blog of a, a military wife, and as I read it, it was, it was kind of funny because all kinds of misspellings and everything, and, and I got to the end, and I go, but boy, you know what? May not have great English skills, but has some good understanding of life. So I've been given an opportunity, a unique opportunity at this time in my life to reflect on the overall scope of my life. You know, where I've been, where I am, where I hope to go. In the midst of so many changes in my life last year, unfortunately, I had to face the passing of three family members, and this month we faced the untimely death of my older cousin. The Lord knows how thankful I was to have my husband return safely to me from Iraq in December. But with each loss in my family, although I felt the sting of pain, I have been reminded of the distinguishing splendor that each of these individuals brought to my life and so many others. I cleaned up her English, by the way. I'm learning a lesson through all this. Take advantage of every opportunity. Honestly, change has never been an easy thing for me. This is funny because everything I've ever wanted to do or be involved in involved making changes and trust that everything would be okay. Sometimes people just need to be reminded of those silver linings and rainbows. Many struggles lead to great opportunities when we focus our efforts in the right direction. When my husband was deployed, I thought my only distress would be to keep my cool until he returned. And that, my friend, seemed like more than I could handle. I did not even consider facing so many other forms of loss. Life is filled with the unexpected. Never forget that diamonds are formed under pressure in the dark. Just remember that no matter what happens, somewhere in the midst of our situations rests the sweet fragrance of an opportunity. Do not be afraid to take advantage of them. Life is a gift given to each of us. This is the part I love. Sometimes embedded in our greatest opportunity is a chance to make a difference in someone else's life. Sometimes embedded in our greatest opportunity is a chance to make a difference in someone else's life. It may not be about you. Maybe your big opportunity is to change someone else. Maybe your big opportunity is to change someone else is looking for. Wishing you the best. Let's pray. Father, the opportunities before us may not even just be about us, but they may be about people who are wondering, why would you love me? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you give time? Why would you give money? Why would you pray for me? Why would you write me a note? Why would you reconcile with me? Why would you go into counseling for me? Why would you, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, why would you do it? Because, because you... You are a follower of Jesus and you love him and you want to follow his instructions. God, thank you. Amen.